0: What does motion sound like? With Kizikans Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizikcom socks. Hi, I'm Jim Stroud, and this is my podcast. I've said it once and will say it again and again and likely until the end of the year and beyond. These are interesting times. While that is true for a number of issues, I am referring to all the protests that are going on. There have been a lot of protests in America over the years, true. In fact, our Constitution guarantees us the right to peaceful assembly. All too often, however, the peaceful assembly turns to riots resulting in damage Looting and loss of life. In some cases, the sacrifices are worth it and sometimes they are not, frankly. Although today's protests are in full swing, there are several others that have passed and can be analyzed. And that's what I'll be doing in this episode of the Jim Stroud Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Superpass, the go-to software for out-the-box content, websites and mobile apps with the Superpass platform. You can create your own branded website and native mobile apps to host your digital content, subscribers, and more. Do you have quality content that you want to share with the world in a beautiful and intuitive site? If so, then Superpass can provide the tech solution for you. Hold all your digital content in one place, your brand, your way. Check out superpass.app. That's S-U-P-A-P-A-S-S dot app. Andrew DePietro wrote a very intriguing article called Shocking Truths About What Protests Cost You. I will quote it heavily in this episode, uh, but I highly suggest you read the full article for yourself. A link to it will be available on jimstroud.com. Until recently, I never really thought about how expensive protests could be for those attending the protests and how much more expensive it is in the aftermath. Here are a few quotes and insights from that article I I just mentioned. The steps involved in participating in a protest are more complex than just getting on a bus to Washington, D.C. There are basic, everyday necessities you need to plan for as well. Some of the expenses that need to be factored in are tolls, gas, parking, and food, said Dr. Marika Lindham, founder of Empowering Solo Moms Everywhere. She attended the Women's March on Washington in January. The road trip to D.C. from home, New York, cost approximately $80 for gas, $25 in tolls, $50 in food, and then $30 for parking at the Kennedy Center uh, the day of the march," she said. Lindome managed to keep the costs fairly low as she also crashed at a friend's house outside of the district to save even more money. But how much does it cost to host and organize a large protest such as the Women's March on Washington? Organizers wanted to raise at least $2 million to go toward the logistics and expenses. A little bit further down in the article it says this. When it comes to protests, marches, riots and other demonstrations, law enforcement officers are often needed to keep the peace, redirect traffic and protect bystanders, participants and property. This can get expensive very quickly. Police officers can cost the government and taxpayers a lot of money thanks to overtime pay. And some of the examples they cited in the article uh, were these. In January 2017, in Philadelphia, there was an anti-Trump protest, which uh, cost $2.85 million in overtime pay for police officers. In uh, July 2016, in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, there was an anti-police brutality protest which ran up about a bill of 1.6 million. And in 2014, in New York, there was also another anti-police brutality protest, uh, which cost about 22.9 million. Aside from footing the bill for police overtime, taxpayers often account for costs associated with property damage. In the case of Charlotte, North Carolina, Protests inflicted $122,000 worth of property damage to city-owned buildings alone, uh, reports the Charlotte Observer. And in uh, 2015, the Baltimore Sun reported the rioting and unrest that followed after Freddie Gray's death was estimated to cost taxpayers $20 million, which includes overtime pay for law enforcement, damage to city-owned property, and more. A few other stats cited in the article, were these, uh, they had several, but the, the two that really jumped out at me was the 1965 Watts riots in Los Angeles. That cost, uh, or rather the property value damage, uh, the damage, <laughs> sorry again, the value of the property damage uh, totaled up to be $183 million, uh, which is a lot of money. But fast forward from the 1965 Watts riots to the 1992 LA riots and the value of the property damage there was $446 million. And then there are the innocent bystanders caught in the middle. And I'm referring to the business owners and the employees who work in the area of the protest. Property, and in particular, local businesses, are often innocent bystanders that get caught in the middle of protests and riots. In addition to property damage, some businesses lose out on sales and some employees lose their jobs. For example, the Occupy Wall Street movement cost local businesses about half a million dollars, $479,400 to be precise, found the uh, New York Post in a 2011 survey. And in Ferguson, Missouri, protests and riots after the fatal shooting of Michael Brown caused an estimated 80% drop in sales to local businesses reported Time in 2014. Protests often immediately impact businesses on a local level, but their effects can be bigger. In the US, Los Angeles is a prime example of the lingering longer-term economic effects of protests and riots. According to a 2004 study conducted by Victor Matheson of College of the Holy Cross and Robert Bade of Lake Forest College, Los Angeles, uh, Los Angeles lost an estimated $4 billion in taxable sales in a decade. (laughs) That's the decade following the 1992 Los Angeles riots. Part of the problem is that it's more difficult to repair the damage caused by a riot or protest. Now, in in a natural disaster, for example, people tend to be more willing to cooperate and band together and help rebuild the community. But after protests and riots, this is harder to do because the community has been uh, divided. If one is to have a successful protest, strike, or any other type of resistance movement, you need to follow five steps, as described in the Harvard Business Review article, How Protests Become Successful Social Movements," which was authored by Greg Sattel. Excuse me, Greg Sattel. Sorry, Greg, if you're listening. <laughs> authored by Greg Sattel and Sergio Popovic. Step one, as they have laid out, is to have a clearly defined goal. And I'll share the other steps and compare and contrast recent events <laughs> with the successful civil rights movement uh, after this. DuckDuckGo is a search engine just like Google, and its main focus is users' privacy. If you have ever used this search engine, you already know what it can do for you. Now, whether you are a new DuckDuckGo user who is trying to learn what all this site can do, or you are someone who's already been using the site for some time, learning some of the search tips for this famous search engine will not hurt. Go to www.jimstroud.com free to download the free ebook 12 DuckDuckGo Search Tips You Should Know to Boost Productivity. Again, go to www.jimstroud.com free to download the free ebook 12 DuckDuckGo search tips you should know to boost productivity. Do it now. You'll be glad you did. In the Harvard Business Review article, How Protests Become Successful Social Movements, five steps are outlined. Step one, define the change you want to see. To create the change you want to see, you have to make an affirmative case and define exactly what you want to happen. Being mad, only will likely not accomplish anything positive. You must have a stated goal, like um, I want a certain individual removed from office. Step two, shift the spectrum of allies. Once you have clearly defined the change you want to happen, you need to start examining your spectrum of your spectrum of allies. Figure out whom you can expect active or passive support from and who will offer neutrality at best, or active or passive opposition at worst. For example, when um, Harvey Milk began the LGBT movement, he started with gay people on Castro Street, but then continued to the straight liberals in the San Francisco Bay Area and built momentum from there. Step three, identify the pillars of power. While it is crucial to recruit allies from up and down the spectrum of support, it is also important to identify the institutions that have the power to implement the change you seek. These pillars of power can be the police, the media, the education system, government agencies, or other organizations. As important as popular support is to a movement, without institutional support, little is likely to change. Step four. Seek to attract, not to overpower. Every movement seeks to correct some injustice, so it's easy to fall into the trap of demonizing the other side. Yet, this is where many movements go off the rails. Anger is an effective mobilizer, but anger without hope is a destructive force. You need to make an affirmative case with affirmative tactics. Blocking streets and throwing rocks at the police is most likely to turn off those in the middle of your spectrum of allies and will make it decidedly more difficult to gain support from the institutions inside the pillars of power. During the 2016 U.S. presidential election, for example, the Bernie Bros may have riled up Bernie Sanders' most ardent supporters but they likely turn off many that he desperately needed to win over. And finally, step five, build a plan to survive victory. Ironically, one of the most dangerous stages of a revolution is just after the victory has been won. In Ukraine's 2004 Orange Revolution, the incoming team was unable to create a unified, effective government, and soon the country devolved into chaos once again. Secular protests prevailed in Egypt in 2011, but it was the Muslim Brotherhood that won the elections that followed. It's important not to confuse the movement for change with the values that the movement seeks to represent. Just because you win an election or get a program approved and funded doesn't mean it's time to declare victory. In fact, it's at this point that you must strengthen alliances and renew each stakeholder's commitment to what created change In the first place. One movement that followed the five steps perfectly (laughs) is the Civil Rights March on Washington. It amassed more than 200,000 supporters to march on the nation's capital on August 28th, 1963. The march rightfully earned its place in history as not only as a big protest, but a successful one. And though the march occurred in 1963, it continued to apply pressure even after victory, securing not just the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but also the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Now, let's compare the civil rights movement with a very popular but wholly unsuccessful movement, Occupy Wall Street. Here's another long quote from Andrew DePietro's article. Occupy Wall Street is a movement that gained global attention in 2011. All across the nation, frustrated Americans of the 99% protested against economic inequality, greed, and corruption, which they attributed to Wall Street, major banks, and the wealthiest 1%. Megan Maroney was an organizer of several Occupy Wall Street protests, which she did, uh, excuse me, which she said were cheap to participate in and organize. We had tons of people, people marching and organizing all over the country, she said, and people really were frustrated, angry, and wanted to make a difference. But despite its large number of participants and wide geographic following, Occupy Wall Street didn't have a clearly defined goal. Instead, it was more of an expression of dissatisfaction with the economy and finance industry. The frustration that brought a lot of us together also covered up how different participants' motivations and goals were for the movement, Maroney said. As the movement grew, it began to absorb additional existing opposition movements, which clouded its goals. As a result, Occupy Wall Street's accomplishments were more indirect. For example... Occupy Wall Street led to the creation of several spin-off political movements. A notable spin-off is Rolling Jubilee, a strike debt project that has helped eliminate more than $31 million in student debt, according to its website. Occupy Wall Street also arguably let uh, excuse me, arguably set off a chain of indirect movements focused on income and wages. According to an Atlantic article, article, the movement inspired New York City fast food workers to walk off the job in November 2012. What followed was a national movement to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. Years later, numerous cities and states voted for higher pay, which which many would claim is a positive impact on the economy. But when compared to the success of the 1960s civil rights protests and women's suffrage protests, Occupy Wall Street's results were minimal. And at the end of the day, the economic cost of this protest movement was a whopping $13 million in police overtime and other municipal services, uh, as reported by NPR in 2011. Okay, 10 years from now, five years, next year, will we be comparing Black Lives Matter to the Occupy Wall Street movement? Will we say it was a hugely popular movement with a wide geographic following with people who were largely dissatisfied with how some police engage with the black community? Will they say that money was raised Celebrities endorsed the cause, and politicians leveraged it for votes. But will they also say that in the end, there was a huge monetary cost, lives were destroyed, businesses were lost, but eventually, life carried on? I would like to hope that as with the Occupy Wall Street movement, indirect changes happen in terms of police policy reform, such as the processes that keep bad cops working. Maybe a discipline review board made up of citizens who live in the community that the police serve, the police who also patrol the area, and the local politicians who govern that area. In this way, everyone involved has a stake and real change can happen. (sighs) But as I uh, reflect on the five steps of a successful social movement, in my opinion, Black Lives Matter still has a way to go. If you tally up national and local chapter demands, there are a lot of demands. One target they have been in relentless pursuit of, however, is defunding the police. In that effort, they have made significant strides. So check off step one on the list of successful social movement. Uh, They also have uh, connected with allies, which is step two, because Black Lives Matter is mostly celebrated in the media endorsed by celebrities, and even recently, Rasmussen reports said that they were more popular than the president of the United States. Without a doubt, they have identified the pillars of power who have the power to implement change, uh, which is, I think, step three, uh, which is indicative by how Nancy Pelosi and the House and Senate Democrats kneeled in the Capitol's Emancipation Hall last week in memory of George Floyd. Also, I have seen reports of police kneeling before protesters in a show of solidarity with the protesters as well. However, uh, they are still short on step four, which is to seek to attract, not to overpower. In this phase you make positive steps with positive tactics. Has that happened? Uh, Debatable. While there have been peaceful protests, so, too, have there been riots and lootings, and while the population's perpetrating both the riots and the looting and the peaceful protests, uh, although they exist in separate camps, they operate in such close proximity to each other that the negative overpowers the message of the positive. And then there's a the final step, five, build a plan to survive victory. As I pointed out earlier, Black Lives Matter has a lot of things they want to accomplish, But one of their main consistent goals across the board is defunding the police, a mantra that they repeat often. If that goal is achieved on a national scale and all the police just go away, what then? How would law and order be maintained? From what I can tell, uh, no one knows. And I, for one, hope never to find out. If you love what you heard, hate what you heard, or don't know what you just heard, I want to know about it. You can leave a comment concerning this podcast on my website at www.jimstroud.com. In addition to finding source material and related information for this podcast episode, you'll find other goodies that I hope will make you smile. And if you have not already, please subscribe to my website. Your continued support keeps this podcast train chugging down the track.